0: I don't know if if you've ever picked up on this but it's something that has just always stood out to me about our culture. We are obsessed with making heroes out of people. And maybe it's just something innate in the human condition that that we we want heroes, we look for heroes, we look we want these people to 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 rescue us, to care for us and and whether it's uh you know Brad Pitt or Mickey Mantle or uh Barack Obama or whomever, right? At any time, at any point in history, we're we're trying to identify people that we can put our hopes on, and 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 maybe they'll make our dreams come true, or we can live like through them. We can live vicariously and have our dreams come true and make our fantasies become reality, and and we put all our hope on them. That that that, that maybe not Brad Pitt, but we put our hope on them that that they that that they can give us hope, right? That they can provide joy, that they can provide safety and security, and then things will go better. And, and so we just we, we pin all of our hopes on, on these, these heroes. And, and as we go through this series, Gospel Family Tree, we, we have arrived today at, like, the hero of the people of God in King David. Like, you, you, we, I cannot say enough or paint a big enough picture of how important David is as the hero of Israel. Just, I mean, more is written about him. We know more about his story because of the biography and because of the Psalms. We know more about his story than anyone else in Scripture, perhaps even than Jesus himself. David is just the hero of the people of God. And Matthew, in his writing of the genealogy of Jesus sets it up right from the beginning to say this in verse 1 of Matthew 1. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham, the father of the faith. David, the hero of the faith. And I'll skip down to verse 5. We know these, the, the names Abraham, Jacob, I mean Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Verse 5, Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Remember her, the prostitute who comes to faith? Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth, like we talked about last week. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. And Then the little teaser for next week, David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife, which is Bathsheba. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is the son of David, and these first generations from Abraham on down all get to David. Like, that is the big point of this first group of people that he mentions. David is the hero of the Jewish faith. Incredibly important. He is the hero, the influencer of his people. And so I'm going to look today and kind of take two big pieces of David's story, Put them together to say why he is the hero and why it is that Jesus is the better version. Okay? All right, so we need to look at David the giant killer and David the forever king because he's promised a kingdom that's going to last forever. So maybe many of you have probably heard the story of David and Goliath. I mean, this is like you hear about it in sports analogies all the time. Oh, this is a real David versus Goliath match. We've seen some of these in the World Cup already. Um, And I don't even know if sports commentators even know what they're referencing sometimes, right? They were so far removed from being, a, you know, we're a post-Christian culture at this point. But, but you have this, this story of David and Goliath coming from 1 Samuel 16 and 17. And, and, and you need to know a little bit of the background of this story is that, that the people of Israel wanted a king. Coming out of the time of the judges, the people of Israel were looking for a king. And they told Samuel, who was sort of their leader, their prophet— him and God. They're like, we want a king like the rest of the nations have. We want someone who's going to make us look like the other nations. We want somebody who's going to go out and fight our battles for us. And Samuel says, don't do this. And the people are like, no, 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 no. We want it. Samuel feels really down on himself. And he goes to God and he's like, they're rejecting me. And God says, Mm-mm, they're actually rejecting me. They're rejecting my leadership and wanting a king that like, looks like all of the other nations do. Someone to go out and fight their battles. I'm the one who goes out and fight the battles but fine, we'll give him a king. And he picks King Saul. Do you remember this? And Saul becomes the first king of the people of God. And for a little while, things are going along well, but it doesn't take long for Saul to to make a few big missteps in his life that God eventually says, I'm going to withdraw my spirit from him. I'm going to reject him as king, and I'm going to put David over the people of Israel and over the people of Judah. David is going to be... My leader, And he tells Samuel, you're going to go, I'm rejecting Saul, and I'm giving the people David, and you're going to go, and you're going to anoint him. He's a man after God's own heart. Those are God's words to Samuel about David. Paul uses those words about David as well in the book of Acts. He says, I'm, appointing this, I'm anointing this man as a man after my own heart to be the, the leader of the people. And so you have David coming after Saul. David, this shepherd boy, the, 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 the littlest in his family, who's going to turn into this warrior, anointed to be the king. And when Samuel anoints him with oil, it says that the Spirit of God comes upon him in power to enable him to lead the people of God. And you know, as the story, it doesn't take long for the story to progress to where the, the people of Israel are now in battle against the Philistines, who are like their arch enemy, right? They're always trying to defeat the Philistines, If you remember this story, it says that the the, the Philistines line up on one side and Israel lines up on another and battle lines are drawn and and they're going to fight each other. David's back tending sheep while his oldest brothers are out there getting ready to fight with Saul against the Philistines until this giant comes out from the Philistines and starts taunting the people of God for 40 days. Going after them, belittling them, threatening them. David's brothers don't do anything about it. Saul doesn't do anything about it. We come to see that David is going to do something about it. If you have a copy of the Scriptures, you can turn to 1 Samuel 17. Start in verse 3. It says, The Philistines were standing on one hill, and the Israelites were standing on another hill, with a ravine between them. Then a champion named Goliath from Gath came out from the Philistine camp. He was nine feet, nine inches tall and wore a bronze helmet and bronze scale armor that weighed 125 pounds. There was bronze armor on his shins and a bronze javelin was slung between his shoulders. His spear shaft was like a weaver's beam, meaning huge, and the iron point of his spear weighed 15 pounds. In addition, a shield bearer was walking in front of him. He stood and shouted to the Israelite battle formations, Why do you come out to line up in battle formation? He asked them. Am I not a a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Interesting. Are you not servants of Saul? Not Yahweh, Saul. Choose one of your men and have him come down against me. If he wins in a fight against me and kills me, we will be your servants. But if I win against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. Then the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel today. Send me a man so we can fight each other. When Saul, the king who's going to fight our battles, when Saul and all Israel heard these words from the Philistine, they lost their courage and were terrified. Uh, I don't know why I said to go to verse 12. Yeah, you don't need to go to verse 12. <laughs> it should just be verse 11. You have this giant come out from among the Philistines, taunting the people of God for 40 days threatening them, saying, I, I'm, I am going to win, and when I do, you're going to serve us and probably lead them into death. He's this, this huge enemy, this terrifying enemy, and he has all this armor on. see how they give all this description of what the armor is like on his body, and if you read in the Hebrew, what it's telling you is that it was like, it was like snake scales. So now you have this This image starts to form of this giant enemy with this this scaly-like bronze armor over him. I think what's happening is we're finding out that he's a bigger version, a bigger, scarier version of a snake than the one that Saul had killed not too much earlier. Saul had killed a guy in battle named Nashish whose, whose name actually means snake. And he was a hero for that. The people loved him for it, but now you've got David getting ready to fight this even bigger snake, this bigger serpent who's out there taunting the people of God, harassing them. You ever feel harassed in life? Threatening them, belittling them and their God for 40 days. And Saul and the people, including David's brothers, are terrified to do anything about it, knowing that their loss will equal servitude and probably death. And Saul being afraid is probably, in my opinion, an act of disobedience because he's supposed to believe in the power of Yahweh and go and clean out the Philistines. But an act of disobedience, he's living in fear, and he's not going to go and fight them. So along comes David, the littlest run, who comes along and says, I'll do it. If anybody's watched the Veggie Tales story of this, I will fight Goliath. Like, he, he's like, I will do it. I will go and fight Goliath. And I believe that a lot of what's happening there is David's willing to do this because of his preexisting relationship with God. He spent time all alone, out in the fields, shepherding, singing songs, writing poetry to God, learning the character of God, learning who God is to him. He's friends with God. And he knows what God has done for him in the past. He says, look, God's protected me against lions and bears, and I've done all these things, and God's been there for me. I know that he will handle this situation as well. And He knows deep down that God will not be defied by the Philistines. That's really where his faith lies, is he knows that God is not going to tolerate this. Anybody could go out and fight him, because God's doing the fighting. Come on, guys, that's what he's saying, right? Like, come on, let's do this. And Saul says, take my armor. He puts it on, it's clunky, and he can't wear it. He can't take this giant sword. It just doesn't fit him right. And so it says he takes a sling, right? And he gets these stones out of a creek, out of a river, and he says, I'll do it. I'll go. And I'll fight him. You see, the text says this in verse 45 of chapter 17. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with a sword, spear, and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel. You have defied him. Today the Lord will hand you over to me. Today I'll strike you down, remove your head, and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. Then all the world will know that Israel has a God. And this whole assembly will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves. Man, that line right there. It is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. When the Philistines started toward, uh, forward to attack him, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in the bag, took out a stone, slung it, and hit the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down to the ground. David defeated the Philistine with a sling and a stone. David overpowered the Philistine and killed him without having a sword. David ran and stood over him. He grabbed the Philistine's sword, pulled it from his sheath, and used it to kill him. Then he cut off his head. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they fled. The men of Israel and Judah rallied, shouting their battle cry, and chased the Philistines to the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekron. Philistine bodies were strewn all along the Sharam road to Gath and Ekron. They were running home. Huh. I never caught that before. When the Philistines returned from the pursuit of the Philistines, they plundered their camps. David took Goliath's head and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put Goliath's weapons in his own tent. It's fascinating to me that David uses Goliath's own weapon against him to kill him, to kill the snake. To take off his head. And as gruesome as it is, I need you to understand this. He takes the head of Goliath, this enemy of God, and he takes it where? To Jerusalem. And most scholars believe that he would not have brought it into the city gates because it was unclean. He would have put it on a hill outside of town. The rest of 1 Samuel ends up being the story of of David's acclaim rising as the hero of Israel and Saul's influence diminishing and Saul chasing David around the countryside, threatening to kill him because he knows what's happening, that he is losing authority and David is gaining authority and he's God's man for the job and Saul no longer is. So David becomes this incredible hero in the eyes of the people. The text has already said that he's handsome, that he's good-looking. Immediately after this, he's coming back into town, and it says that people are singing, Saul has killed his thousands, but David's killed his ten thousands. like how quickly his fame has risen to where he's already like this incredible warrior in the eyes of the people. And eventually, he does become king through an act of God preserving him through Saul's chasing, and he becomes king, and he takes these these two disparate people, these fighting civil war people of Judah and Israel, and he puts them together and he unites the kingdom, proving that he's not just a warrior, he's not just handsome, he's actually an incredibly good diplomat. And he's able to work all of these things together. And they go on and they defeat many of Israel's enemies who were still standing. And he fights for his people. He establishes Jerusalem as the religious and political capital and the center of the people of God through incredible uh, war strategies, incredibly intelligent. We know that he's also a poet, a musician. He's a real Renaissance man, right? And he's, he's writing these incredible poems about and to the Father and, and expressing what is in his heart, this love and this worship of, of Yahweh. We see that he's a prophet. And in an incredible act, I think there's so much happening within this story. In 2 Samuel, we see that David says, the ark of God should not just be traveling around out in the countryside. Let's bring it to Jerusalem. And now some funny things happen along the way. We don't have time to get into it. But he says, let's bring the presence of God closer to the center of the people. Let's let's, let's bring it here. And if you remember this story, the giant killer becomes this incredible worshiper. Do you remember this story as the ark is is coming towards the people? That the people are celebrating and there's all this fanfare. And David's right there in the middle of it. David the worshiper, it says he's, he's dancing around in a linen ephod, basically naked, like in his underpants, dancing around in front of this ark, just furiously worshiping God with all of his might. He loves God this much that he's willing to just worship him with abandon, invulnerability, leading the people in worship, and he's making offerings every six steps to God, these at great expense leading the people in this act of offering and worship. And then it says that he distributes bread to people along the way. This is just fascinating to me, that all of this is happening and he starts giving out gifts to the people. Bread, raisin cakes, I think it says even flesh, like he's giving out meat to the people. Just bringing up this, this worship and this gratitude to the God, Yahweh, who's coming in through the Ark of the Covenant to be present with them in Jerusalem. Then it's at this point that David gets this good idea. He says, you know, I'm I'm living in this great house. Why should our God, who's so incredible, be in this tent of animal fur, just roaming around the desert? I'm gonna make a temple for him. I'm gonna make this this, this great, ornate place that that God deserves. And, and I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna bring the Ark of the Covenant into it. But instead, God says something different. He has this great plan. Look what God says to him, though, through through the prophet. uh, David had a prophet uh, named Nathan who's speaking into his life. And he tells Nathan, God speaks to Nathan after David's big idea about the temple. God speaks to Nathan and says this, So now this is what you are to say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of Armies says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all your enemies before you. I will make a great name for you, like that of the greatest on earth. I will designate a place for my people Israel and plant them, so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not continue to oppress them as they have done Ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Listen to this. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever. And your throne will be established forever. So David says, I'm going to make this great house for God. I'm going to make a place that's just enduring and wonderful. And God says, no. Your son is going to do it, which we'll talk about next week. But he says, you want to give me a place to rest? Mm-mm. I will give you a place to rest, David. He says, you want to make a name for me? Mm-mm. I will make a name for you, God says, you don't make a house for me. I'm going to make a house for you. I'm going to make a house for you to live in, David. He says, I'm going to establish your kingdom. I'm going to establish your throne forever. And this little prophetic twist, I... I'm going to raise up this descendant of whom I will be his father and he will be my son. Which is, I believe, Solomon, but we see where this is going all the centuries before Christ. So David wants to do this thing for God and God flips it and says, no, 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 I'm making you the forever king. I'm making it, it's going to be your family that reigns forever. It's going to be your throne that goes on forever. It's this beautiful picture, and it's, it's, it's just like this high point for David. The giant killer, the hero of the people, the protector of the people, the one who's going to fight the battles, the handsome one, the diplomat, the politician, the intelligent one, the poet, the musician, the renaissance man. Your kingdom's going to last forever. I'm going to give you a place to rest. I'm going to build a house for you to live in. And yet, <laughs> it's only a few chapters later That he commits gross adultery. That he has a man killed to take his wife. You see the corruption in David's heart. His heart that's after God, right? The man after God's own heart is morally corrupt. Creates a ton of family issues and brokenness that spreads through generations. And the forever king, the forever king's life ends in a whimper feeble, weakened, threatened by outsiders, clutching for power. But friends, isn't this our story too? We have seen God do so much in our lives, yet we are still stuck with a morally corrupt heart, facing giants of our own, addiction, family issues, heritage issues, broken relationships, and so on. We are a mixture of darkness and light, are we not? Could have been Christians for years, yet we still have that, that darkness that lives in there. So what are we to do <laughs> this Advent, this season of, of darkness and light? Where do we put our hope? What hero is there for us? Where does our rescue come from? Who's going to fight the battle for us? Who is it? You know it. Jesus. This is the gospel for us today, coming all the way back from First and 2 Samuel, that Jesus is the better giant killer, that Jesus is the forever king in the line of David, which is what Matthew wants us to know. That what started with Abraham and reached its ultimate point in David now finds its fulfillment in Jesus all these centuries later at Christmas. Jesus, whose birth is announced by shepherds. Jesus, who goes on to say, I am a shepherd. I'm not just a shepherd, I am the good shepherd. My sheep know my voice and listen to me. Jesus, whose birth is is a bursting forth into the dark. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, This is Jesus' purity and righteousness and light. Jesus, the defender, who will not tolerate his people being harassed, who will not tolerate his people being threatened, being abused, being slaves. He says, no, 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 I will come and I will fight for them. I will win them back to the Father. He will fight the giant of sin and death on our behalf so that we can be free in him and freely worship him. Jesus, who will use the enemy's own weapon of death against him, friends, at the cross, uses his own death to crush the head of the snake. Fighting the serpent of, of, of Satan at the cross when all of evil comes in and tries to crush him, and it does, yet through that death, the serpent of Satan is rendered Powerless. and I read something this week that I had never read before and I'm still studying it if anybody else wants to look this up with me I would encourage you to do you know where the hill is that Jesus dies on what it's called Golgotha Goliath from Gath Golgoth and there's scholars who think that this place that's known as the the hill of the skull, is actually where David took his head and planted it outside of Jerusalem. And here Jesus is, all these years later, crushing the head of the serpent on the same hill. I can't prove that? There's part of me that thinks, like, that's Christian myth. I'm not going to lie. But it makes a good argument, does it not? And either way, the symbolism's there, so I'm going with it. Jesus, who brings the presence of God into the city close to the people, who distributes bread not just to the 5,000, but to you and me, saying, my body is the living bread, it's eternal life. Come and eat like we talked about last week who truly is the forever king. Because of his resurrection, he reigns at the right hand of the Father, now and forever. He is forever on the throne. This kingdom of David has reached its fulfillment in Jesus, and it does last forever. And you and I get to be a part of it through Christ. God saying, I will be his father, and he will be my son. He will be struck with the blows of mortals, and yet raised to new life, his kingdom lasting forever. Jesus is the better giant killer and the truly forever king. So what does it mean? Why does it matter for you and me this Advent? That's great, Jim. That's a nice story. That's wonderful. What does it mean? I got to deal with my in-laws at Christmas. You can laugh. That's okay. Some of you know it, all right? I got to deal with those people I don't know if I'm going to get that raise at work. I deserve it. It's been three years. That promotion. I don't know if I'm going to make the team. What does it matter that David is the giant killer? Or that Jesus is the giant killer, rather? What does it matter that he's forever the king? Here's why it matters to me our tendency in facing the giants in our lives is to try to make ourselves the hero. I'll fix it. I will be stronger. I'll be my own rescue. I'll figure it out. Friends, I believe we have a role to play in walking with Jesus and dealing with junk in our lives, 100%. But I would argue that it's only in and through his authority that we do so. He is the rescuer. For too long, this is the thing that broke open my mind for the gospel seven years ago. For too long, we have been taught, go be like David. David. Go fight the giants in your lives. Friends, that's not us. We're cowardly Israel back on the hillside. Jesus is the rescuer. Jesus is the one who goes and fights the giant of sin and death in our lives. We rally behind him, keeping our eyes on him, the author and perfecter of our faith, walking with him saying, you go before me. You do. Now, do we have work to do? 100%. I'm not saying we don't but it's through his victory that he wins on our behalf that we have confidence through our worship of him to then deal with sin and brokenness in our lives. It's our position in him that encourages us to keep going, to say, it's already been won. I'm free. I can worship him and it changes me from the inside out. We make ourselves the hero too often by trying to rescue ourselves or we try to make ourselves the hero by being really religious and really good and just eliminating the bad from our lives. And that way then God's presence come into my life and then all will be well. Friends, it's anathema to the gospel. The gospel says, you're free. The religious good deeds have already been done. You now walk in the freedom of that and then choose into it. Gospel motivated good behaviors because you believe that Jesus has purchased full life for you and the good shepherd says, come and live it out with me. You say, great, I want that, which then does enable us to deal with sin and brokenness in our lives. This is what I mean. This Christmas, this Advent season, as we walk through the brokenness and darkness of this world and in our lives as a mixture of, of, of darkness and light. <laughs> One of my f- favorite songs is All My Favorite People Are Broken, which Dennis and I have talked about recently. says that we're all part sinner, part saint. <laughs> like, as we walk as those people, what are we worshiping? Are we we trying to turn our thoughts to Jesus? Are we attempting to worship him? Or are we trying to save ourselves? As we walk in the mixture of darkness and light, will we turn to the light and say, I'm just going to worship him. I'm just going to worship him. He is the better hero. We join David in worshiping Jesus in abandon, dancing around, singing, praying, following him, worshiping him. He is the better hero in our family line. Simply Jesus, who is all light and no darkness in him at all, John says. And when we worship him, it changes our identity, which then changes our behavior. But it starts with worship, not thinking we can rescue ourselves. It starts with worshiping him, the true giant killer and forever king not by sword or by might, but in the name of Jesus. Do we have authority to do that? Do we have the victory? We're going to sing a song here to close today. Come thou long expected Jesus. I want to read this for us. Krista, Dennis, if you guys want to come up and get ready, that's fine. I'm going to read this for us. This is the season we're in, friends. We have the hope of Christmas in front of us, and we also have the hope of the return of Jesus. So maybe think of this in a dual lens this year. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us, Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, the forever king. Born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, meaning it's his merit that earns it. It is sufficient. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. That's how we ascend to the throne that none of us are worthy of. Yet because of Jesus and his sufficient merit, we are seated with him at the right hand of the Father. Friends, would you stand? I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing together.